because Sir Miles is a history teacher and Kayla is a history teacher. So they're basically the same person. <laughs> Both the, the town drunk. <laughs> <laughs> we could edit that out, yeah. right, Steve? <laughs> yeah, actually, where's your drink? I thought you were going to have one <laughs> with you. <laughs> Also, I just named our guy Steve. That's not okay. there. Yeah, Steve I don't know. is our imaginary technical guy. He's going to edit all of these for us. That's going to save me <laughs> a lot of time. <laughs> Welcome to the Dancing Dove Podcast, where Kayla and I analyze the legal and historical aspects of Tamara Pierce's Tortal novels. Today, we'll be discussing the first four chapters of Alana, The First Adventure. So... The first book of the first series in the Tortal universe is called The First Adventure. Pretty apt. <laughs> if you're Title. confused, they really help you out. <laughs> um, and as we said, we're just going to do a few chapters per episode. So this, this episode, we're going to talk about chapters one through four. Let me just make sure you read chapters, I read one, chapters through four, one through four, right? Four. <laughs> yes. Okay. So the first thing we want to talk about is just our general impressions. So obviously I've read this book a million times, so I'm bursting at the (laughs) seams to find out. What did you think? I mean, so far I loved it. It's early to tell, but I never found myself wanting to put it down, wanted to know where she was going, what was happening. A few thoughts that I did have... They really made the choice to switch places very quickly. So quickly. Yes. That is an insane moment. Like, what page was it? Page three? That they're like, yeah, let's do it. (laughs) Not only that, but it's the day before they're going to leave. Yeah. And everything just works out perfectly. And I think um, I will... uh, What's that called? You know in D&D when you're like... Roll for initiative? No. <laughs> I've never played D&D. Okay, okay. You have. Okay, yes. Dungeon um, Master. No, 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 those no, no, are, no, Those are my words. It's I, it's not retrofit, but it's something like retrofit, and I'm just going to say retrofit for now. But All it's right. essentially when you... We can edit that, that out, right? Just kidding. There's nobody here. <laughs> just pretending, you know. Yeah, we can... Yes. Uh, imaginary tech guy. Hey, can you edit that out for us? Um... No, so it's essentially when, like, you create an explanation for something that's already happened. Oh, yeah. Um, and I'm going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I think, one of the things that's really interesting about this book and this series is the role of fate and the gods. Which um, we get, like, a brief glimpse of in the first chapter when they ask Maud to help them put on this mm-hmm. fraud, essentially. <laughs> oh, Maud is doing the fraud. Oh, God. Oh, God. I set you up for that. Um, and she looks in the fire to, um, to sort of see, with capital S, what the future is or to get guidance of some kind. And it's not clear, I don't think, in that moment, like, what the forces mm-hmm. are that are helping her do this. Right. But... Because we have that pretty immediately, I think you could argue, from a retrofitting perspective, that the reason it worked out so perfectly, maybe even the reason Alana is inspired to have this idea, has something to do with some external guidance. Mm, like from, from the a, gods from the or gods the fate or, or the her form. gift. Yeah, some, something along those lines. Now, obviously, we know this is in her personality because she has that moment of, like, 
um, self-reflection where she's like, oh, should I stop this before it gets too out of hand? And you're thinking, I don't know, I'm thinking to myself when I'm reading that, like, yeah, you just came up with a crazy (laughs) idea. I know. I really found myself being like, no, you can't. You can't do that. Like, you're (laughs) going to get caught. You're going to get in trouble. And then I said to myself, Kayla, you need to take risks sometimes too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but this is a huge risk. Huge risk. Although maybe maybe we're just, uh, we have low risk tolerance. I, I guess. Um, I think that is one of the things that you admire about Alana is that she's right. really brave. She sort of jumps into things and maybe that doesn't work out for her always, but it, it speaks to like her true heart. Um, Typical Gryffindor problem. Just exactly. jumping feet in without thinking about the consequences. <laughs> okay, she would definitely be a Gryffindor, and yeah. I think we need to do an entire episode just yeah. analyzing yeah. everybody's houses. Um, great point. But actually, that brings up something that I wanted to mention, although I think we'll discuss this more as we go along, which is the Code of Chivalry, mm-hmm. which is mentioned a couple of times, and I haven't done as much research into it yet um, as I would like to, but I think... The origins of the Code of Chivalry, which is essentially, has always been fantasy. Like, although it was encoded, there was never actually a set group of people mm-hmm. who were like, these are the rules that we're following. Um, but obviously is a pretty common trope Definitely. in high fantasy, yeah. which I guess we're now getting into tropes <laughs> a little bit. Um, but the idea that Alana, like, jumps into ideas and jumps into you know, adventures, that I think is very much reflective of the like chivalrous character Mm -hmm. that is supposed to be um, like what a knight's supposed to be. And so right from the gun, we see that she is defying the restriction against women serving as knights. Like obviously she's so perfectly fit to be a knight, even from the beginning. Yeah. Okay. What else did you think? Um, well, speaking of tropes and of that part, I just couldn't not think about Dune when she was putting her hand in the fire. Oh, It's wow. just like the box. I've never made that connection before. Yeah, because you probably read this before you read Dune. Many years yeah. before. You know, I just positively a Dune-esque moment where they're putting their hands in the fire and trying to live through the pain without taking their hand away. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a pretty terrifying moment, by the oh, way. Oh, yeah. Like, it's like, <laughs> okay, here's the universe. Here are two twins. They have purple eyes and red hair. And <laughs> now they're going to switch places and not tell anyone and also almost get their hands burned <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah. It's quite a beginning to a yeah. series. Um, yeah. That's then a there's point. the fraud with Maud. Sorry. <laughs> it's, just, it's really good. <laughs> oh, my God. Maud's fraud. Okay. Um, yes. And it's funny. I mean, I'm glad we're talking about Maud so much because she sadly is not around anymore after this um, first chapter. But I do think she plays a really huge role yeah. as, like, essentially the twins' mother. Um, and Coram is basically their dad because their mom died, um, I think, in childbirth, mm-hmm. right? And um, he blames magic for it. Yes, 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 which is a really interesting... Um, and sad yeah. background for this. So guy. I mean, they're basically almost orphans, they're which is just orphans. another trope. major fantasy trope. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, the idea that they can pull this off because their dad doesn't pay attention to them Insane. is so heartbreaking. Or especially the part when the Duke is like, "Hey, your dad wrote back and was like, glad Tom's doing such a good job.'" Oh, 
And he's like, and Alana is like, oh no, yeah, he just gets us confused. And the Duke's like, oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) No further investigation. Yeah, I mean, okay, I will actually reveal a theory that I have been, it's only been cooking for like 12 hours. So we'll see how it goes as we we move along. But I do have this theory, and I don't know if this is like a conscious decision of hers or it just like happens to fall together, but I do feel that these books occurring in this timeline, which I actually have the Tortal timeline pulled up, you shouldn't look too far because there's going to be spoilers in here. Yeah, so the Alana books take place in the 400s, so Tom and Alana are born in 419. Like in our world's time? No, no, Or it's like a completely different... Completely different. So it's just in this universe. Um, And my theory is that the early 400s line up with the end of what is considered sort of the first of three stages of the medieval era. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's sort of the early stage, the middle stage, and the the late stage, um, which sort of bleeds into the Renaissance. But I think that... um, this is something that you'll see as, as we yeah. read the later series, but it, it sort of feels to me like <clears throat> there's like less supervision. It's sort of like how I feel our parents talk about like our generation being the helicopter parent generation, mm-hmm. where my mom will talk about how she could just run around the neighborhood. Yeah, my no mom one, does that too. Yeah, like no one knew where she was. They were just doing whatever. And then, I mean, this is more in terms of like your field of history because it's like modern American history. (laughs) Um, But my understanding is that there was a period of time where the news like showed all of these um, stories of child abductions, Mm -hmm. which led to the sort of frenzy around keeping tabs on your kids. And then obviously the rise of technology now allows you to like literally keep tabs on your kids. Yeah. Like when I was growing up, there was a service announcement at 10 every night that was it's 10 p.m. do you know where your children are oh yeah so it's definitely some kind of scheme that was cooked up like (laughs) not a scheme but definitely a push that created the environment where now parents want to know where their kid is all the time exactly exactly and um anyway I think I sort of see that in the development of these books where like this series takes place in an environment where there's like rules are a little bit more lax um like she can just i don't know it's yeah we'll see (laughs) as we go through the other things that happen um and just like the fact that they're just like uh, i mean okay we haven't talked about rowan yet but i think that we will get there and actually i should look up in the pronunciation guide because i I don't want to be saying this wrong oh no it's not in here okay how do you say this name you know, I think I was saying it Raylon in my I head. I think that might be right. I'm not sure. I'm actually not sure. I, I will put on the record that I said <laughs> I have been saying Raylon in my head for whatever, 15 years or longer. Well, but you know, haven't I ever told you about when I first read Twilight? I never knew. I never heard it out loud. So I thought it was Carlisle. <laughs> not Carlisle. Carlisle. Because why would it be Carlisle? Oh, I can one-up you. I said Hermione for like three years. Who are you, Victor Crumb? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. It's terrible. I think, I mean, I Let's could go see. with Raylon. That's fine. I think that makes more sense. As an adult now looking at this. Um, all right. We'll do it for now, and then maybe someone will correct us, or I can, I can ask on the Facebook group. 
Um, According wow. to standard English, it could really be either. It could I be do either. teach a phonics class. Oh, well, there we go. Um, oh, man, this pronunciation guide is really letting me down right now. Um, okay. Well, interesting. So Raylon, um, I mean, I think I wanted to talk, I wanted to hear your reaction in general to like the pedagogy presented and the like environment of bullying and all of that. Um, but I think the idea that someone could be bullying someone physically so aggressively is just kind of foreign to like modern age, especially because now we see more bullying happening in cyberbullying, right? Um, and in that kind of in like places where we don't see it as much, right? They, a, a big push, not a big push, but it's such a change that now because they have the internet to kind of hide behind, it's way easier mm. to bully someone that way. Yeah. Um, and also, I mean, not to get too far into it, but there's such a no bully and like bully free zone and stuff like that in education today that students don't even think about the word bully. Mm -hmm. If I ever use the word bully, they are immediately shut down. They're like, I'm not a bully. Oh yeah. It's really, it's really an interesting situation because then it's really hard to have the conversation, which is like, actually when you said that thing, that was an act of bullying. Right. But then immediately they're just like, no, I'm not a bully. I'm not a bully. Huh. So I got to be honest, as a teacher, reading the bullying part was not my favorite. Yeah. Um, what do you but think that? Yeah, what I was feel your reaction? Like, I feel like it was her way of being like, Alana needs to become tough because there's someone who's picking on her. Yeah. Which I understand. I feel like there's probably a different way it could have been done, but it is a very common trope. Yes. You know, Draco Malfoy, you know, like <laughs> there's a lot of, especially when, whenever there's a school environment, it feels like that happens. Yeah. I mean, definitely for me, In I books. see a lot of parallels between this, which obviously predates Harry Potter right. um, because they're at this sort of yeah. boarding school setting. It's impossible to not relate it to Harry Potter. Yeah. Um, In our life. In our generation. Yeah. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, but... I'm curious, what do you think of the way that they present the schooling? Because obviously that's not the kind of thing that would have happened in, like, real historical uh, settings. Like, knights were not trained in, like, a knight school. Um, Do you know how they were trained? Well, my understanding from, like, a very brief survey is that knighthood was something that, like... You didn't go somewhere mm-hmm. to learn how to be a knight. It was just you were developing wherever you were from. You were developing as a warrior. Maybe you traveled as part of that process, mm-hmm. um, but you were granted knighthood usually as a reward for some sort of some sort of brave act or for participating in a battle. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the, it, depending on the era and the location. Um, there were sometimes restrictions on who could become a knight. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've never heard of, nor in my quick Googling <laughs> last night, did I discover any sort of historical example of someone, like, setting up a knighthood school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. If I, don't, I don't, I can't think of a, a knighthood way. I do know that ladies went to court, though. Right. So, okay. 
But that was more. I don't now, really think okay, that so was now, in the medieval. So we're going to start talking about history. Yeah. Let's switch over. Oh, so, please. Okay, so we're now switching over to the next segment, which is Sir Miles' study, <laughs> um, because Sir Miles is a history teacher and Kayla is a history teacher, so they're basically the same person. <laughs> Both the, the town drunk. <laughs> <laughs> we could edit that out, yeah. right, Steve? <laughs> Actually, where's your drink? I thought you were going to have one with you. Also, I just named our guy Steve that's not okay. there. Yeah, Steve I don't know. is our imaginary technical guy. He's going to edit all of these for us. That's going to save me a lot of time. <laughs> yeah, luckily you don't have a lot going on in no, law school. Yeah, nothing going on. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's really interesting to think about what this would have been like in history. My first initial thoughts were about how the king and queen seem not present in court mm. until they come in when their son is sick. sick. Yeah. So I think technically they are at the dinners, which the pages serve at. Right. But I think they're just not really mentioned much. Right. Which, in my understanding of my, my general expertise is on American history, yeah. which we mentioned before, but I also have done a lot of modern European studies, which, you know, I'm very familiar with the kings and queens of England, but <laughs> from like 1600 on. Right. So, uh, but I know that in, in those courts, the king and queen would be very present in their actions and their words. Mm. And I feel like we don't even know the king's name until like the more than halfway through the book, which I yeah. thought was really interesting. Um, I mean, even the way that Prince the prince is portrayed as just one of her friends for a while, or even Gary, who is the duke's son. Right. I couldn't believe it when yeah. I feel like I was like, did I miss that he's the duke's son at first? Yeah. Because all of those people would have had other responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Is my kind of take on it. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I I was actually really curious about that as I was going through it this time, sort of thinking about the questions that I had, um, is especially when Alana first arrives and is introducing herself to the Mm -hmm. other boys, um, the other pages, and John comes in and sort of acts as, like, arbiter of the fight between her and Raylon, and I found that really odd, um, I think for a number of reasons. Like, one... Why are there no adults around? <laughs> like, yeah. it's just Lord of the Flies in there. Yeah. Like, they're just, like, all my... And it's not just John coming in as, like, the final word, which maybe makes sense because he is the prince, and so he has this power to right. just command people to do things for him. Um, but also that everybody else is sort of, like... I, like, manip- not manipulating, but... Um, massaging the scenario based on John's power, right? Right, like, yeah. Like people come in and they're like, hey, shut up, like, do what John said, yeah. you know? Um, I can't remember if Gary is one of the ones who does, but maybe... Some, I, I think Gary might be the one who's like, Alana, that's the prince. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, when yeah, she's, yeah, like, yeah. just chatting, and, right. everyone, and she's like, why is everyone being so quiet? And then they're like, call him your highness. <laughs> yeah. Which is, a, that's a cool moment to, oh, yeah. to introduce him and also to understand, like, how this is different. Especially, like, for me as a young reader, I don't oh, really know. I can't even imagine. Like, me as a nine-year-old girl, I would be like, oh, my God, that's the prince? <laughs> 
<laughs> and he's being so nice to her. Oh my like, god. And he has such beautiful blue eyes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like maybe a little in love with John. It's fine. Um, he's like 13. It's fine. Okay, but I know him as an adult. <laughs> I mean, what? No? Huh? Um, maybe not. Oh, and another thing. I mean, the whole scene where Jonathan is dying. Yes. Um, which, a few things. One, I started to think about the way that healers worked in the yeah. middle, like in medieval times, mm-hmm. um, which was very terribly. They were really <laughs> bad at medicine <laughs> and like really did a lot of things that actually encouraged more people to get sick instead mm. of fewer people to get sick. And really like bloodletting, for example, oh. is just really a terrible practice that yeah. for some reason healers, they weren't really doctor. I mean, they were trying their best, but, uh, they had so many practices, so when the sickness came, it wasn't surprising to me until I learned that it was a magical sickness. Oh. <laughs> so then I was like, huh. Okay, that's really interesting. So, again, having like having read it as like a young person without any historical context, I just assumed that they had like perfect medical capabilities yeah. and that somehow this was like a crazy illness, which oh. turns out that that is kind of the case. Like I think again, my theory of this being like the end of the dark ages, mm-hmm. um, this is still in a time where for Tortal, I think you can notice that they don't have a lot of foreign influence. Um, they don't seem to have a lot of like international relations. Trade, yeah. Trade, yeah. And I think that that extends itself to the sharing of knowledge. Right. I mean, they so, don't even have good communication between different towns that are all in the same kingdom. Exactly. And and uh, I don't know if you notice when they talk about um, whether Duke Roger can come to save John from this like, oh, yeah. magical thing. They're like, well, it he's all the way in Carthage yeah. and it would take so long. So, um, so there's the like physical distance that is measured by whatever technology they have to travel. But also I think it's kind of clear also from like who the teachers are, you know, like they're taught almost entirely by Mithran priests, Mm -hmm. which I believe Mithran priests are from where Tom is studying. Oh. Um, so, in other words, they're all from Tortal. Like, they're not... Right. There's no one that's like, oh, I'm an expert Well, in. what about the Shang Masters? Oh, you're right. So, the Shang Masters, but they're not around. No. So... Uh, the Shang Masters. Okay, I think we need to we need to talk about that as like a whole separate topic. Okay, so we let's can wait, we can let's wait. make a note to go well, back be, to that because another thing about the the sickness that I wanted to mention. Yeah. In history, the fact that this nine year old girl is in charge of his healing is insane. Crazy. But then I thought to myself about, do you know the most famous example of a random healer coming in? No. To a royal family. No, what Rasputin. is Rasputin. Oh, God. Which is, I mean, honestly, it's not quite this. Obviously, it's not the same thing, but just trusting a random person. Wait, do you person. want to explain who that is? Oh, yes. Rasputin is in the, not Disney movie, but it is now on Disney Plus, Anastasia. But that is not really what his role was. So he was an advisor to the Tsar and Tsarina, the last Tsar and Tsarina of Russia, uh, Nicholas and his wife. And the son, the Tsar's son, had hemophilia, which they did not know what that was at the time. I don't know what that is. Oh, it's like a blood disease. (laughs) Okay. Um, But 
nobody knew how to treat him and he was always sick. And all of the things that the healers were actually doing were making him more sick because it was in the early 1900s and this man, Rasputin, who was like a really crazy figure Mm -hmm. was like, I can heal him with my magic basically. And whenever the little boy would hang out with him, he would feel better. better. And it was because Because he wasn't with the people who were making him sicker. Oh my God. (laughs) It's so crazy. Oh my God. But then some people look to Rasputin as one of the reasons that Russia fell because that was right when the revolution was happening as well. Interesting. And the Tsar and Tsarina were so obsessed with the health of their son Hmm. and Rasputin became such a huge figure in their lives, even though he was a peasant, like not of noble birth at all. Okay. And that's actually really sad. Oh yeah. And then they were all, you know, shot in their basement. So, (gasps) oh Oh, yeah. It's a very sad story. Oh, well, Rasputin was killed also, but it really reminded me of that because how could the king and queen, which I know that the queen was sick and the king had some stuff going on, but no, it's crazy that they're not even in the room. I mean, I think that she does make a reference at one moment that, um, they, they say something like they don't want to watch. Because it's too depressing, which, yeah. like, I get that, but I really can't imagine. I don't have children, but I can't <laughs> imagine, like, my parents ever, if I were deathly sick, yeah. not being right by my side right. through the whole thing. And I guess maybe I shouldn't judge. I mean, again, no, I don't have kids. and You're not a king or a queen of not, the <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I really kingdom. couldn't. I couldn't comprehend that kind of responsibility. Um, but also... Speaking historically, yes. the heir is the most important thing to a kingdom, and he's right. the only heir. Yes. And the queen can no longer bear children. Bear children. Yes. Which, as some of our listeners might know, was a really big problem in England. Right. For Henry VIII. Yes, and for many. <laughs> and for many. For many, Royals. many, many. But it's yeah. most famously Henry, Henry VIII. Yeah, one through six wives. Yeah, and so it really just got me thinking, what's the process if he needs a new wife? Yes. But I don't know in the religion, which I assume we'll talk about their religion at some point. Yeah, I mean, so lineage, or um, I guess what's the word for chain of command in a monarchy? Yeah, lineage is fine. Yeah. Um, is That's an important... Successor? Success, yeah, line of succession or whatever. That will become important. Oh. So that's, I'm not. Well, here's my, all right, well, here's my um, prediction. Okay, here we go. It must be that the sickness was the magic into Jonathan and all the people by someone who wants to take over the throne. Uh-huh. I wrote that in my margins. Oh my God. Okay. You know, I think we should do a whole <laughs> segment just on your prediction. Yeah, that would be fun. <laughs> yes. Okay. We're going to add that in. Um, okay. So we've done some historical facts. Any other historical facts you want to add? Uh, no, I think that that's. It the only I, I just I think that my main takeaway was just the idea that kings and queens and dukes I feel like would usually have a lot more power over their subjects and their people and so right. all the times when like if she was found out she could be killed. So that actually okay, let's talk about that for a second because there are a couple moments where they talk about getting caught and what that's going to mean, but I don't think it's ever really spelled out. Right. Um and it's not clear to me for the purposes of this book what the consequences would have been. Um I think in history, like in real life, yeah. and also I'm saying in history, like these are just patterns right. that exist. There it's obviously like 
there's not a country that this is based on. Right. Although I would assume Europe. Yeah. I think primarily England. It would yeah. be my guess. And actually, sorry, this is more of a literary note, but the high fantasy tropes and sort of patterns of like knighthood and, you know, think obviously thinking of um, King Arthur and the Round Table, that famously, or not, maybe not famously, but <laughs> Professor Tolkien would have been really mad <laughs> if we had characterized this as an English kind of myth. Because that, I mean, Arthur, for example, is one of those myths that I think is often thought of as English, but in reality is Norman or French. So it's one of those things that, side note, you English may really notice. basically yeah. French. So. England is basically French. Well, he would be really mad if he heard you say that. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you should know we are all obviously very huge Tolkien <laughs> and Lord of the Rings fans. But, um, yeah, I mean, one of the reasons he started writing his stories was to create a mythology for England since all of the, like, quote-unquote English mythologies are actually French in origin. So, sorry, had to say that. <laughs> Did you ever think King Arthur was real? Uh, yeah, duh. <laughs> like, I thought it was just history. Wait, what do you mean, <laughs> did you? <laughs> like, no, like, you know he wasn't a real king. No, I obviously still believe in him. How dare you, Kayla? <laughs> no, it's not like a thing. Like, my, when I was younger, I just thought he was a figure in history. No, I did too. Okay. Yeah, I did too. I was really crushed when I learned that that was not the case. Uh, <laughs> but you know what? There's a lot of lost history that we just That's don't know. That's so true. You never know. Library of Alexandria. Okay, sorry. What were we talking about? We were going to move on to our next segment. <laughs> okay, we're moving on. The next segment is going to be legal analysis of the books, and we're going to call this segment Clerk Hayward's Office, which is a reference that Kayla is not going to get for a while, um, but hopefully fans can figure that one out. Um, Clerk Hayward, well, I'll just say, was clerk to Lord Magistrate Duke Turamot of Wellam. Um, and he seems like a nice dude. And I feel like his office would be cozy. It would have a lot of law books. Um, and so just imagine we've just stepped into the clerk's office. It does seem like we just broke one of the ground rules, but... Well, that's not a major spoiler. <laughs> kidding, <I'm> kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you don't know when he's going to come up. So that'll be a fun day. Please tell us your my legal 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 facts. So um, there aren't there isn't a lot of direct references to legal structures and systems in these first four chapters, um, and I think like broadly there aren't that many references to law and legal systems and certainly political systems in the entire first series. Um, but not a spoiler, just a general thought that, that it will become more prominent in later series. So a lot, a lot of exciting stuff coming. But what I notice as the primary field of law that comes up in the first series and certainly in these first four chapters is criminal law. And again, I want to stress, I am in no way an expert. Do not take anything that I'm saying as advice. As advice. <laughs> advice, like, you know, take everything I say with a grain of salt. I took one criminal law class last spring. It was with the very great, amazing professor, Rachel Barco, uh, here at NYU Law. But... Um, you know, she can only, she can only pass on so much wisdom in the three and a half months of a semester. So, um, take all that into consideration, but I will say, I think personally growing up reading these books, I thought of Tortal very much as like, a 
uh, an amalgamation of like Dark Ages, Middle Ages, Medieval England, and actually present day U.S. Um, and there's probably many more things thrown in there that we will talk about as we go along and, and many more that we won't talk about because we just only have so much time. Um, but I think it might be interesting for our U.S. listeners to note that the U.S. inherited much of its legal system from England. So our laws and English law in, like historically are very similar. They come from the same origins. And when it comes to criminal law, I think the two like major theories of criminal law, like why do we have criminal law at all, are one, utilitarian, and two, retribution. So utilitarian would be you're trying to deter crime by having some sort of sentence or punishment, or you're trying to rehabilitate prisoners um, in their time uh, sentenced, or you're trying to incapacitate them from continuing to do more harm. And then there's retribution, which is more of a moral statement. So it's sort of saying you did something wrong to society and we are going to punish you for that because you deserve punishment for that action. And I think when I first learned about these concepts, I much more leaned towards the utilitarian concept. Mm -hmm. I think the idea of saying like, oh, we don't, we don't want to punish someone because they deserve it because they're bad, but because there's some like use that we can get out of this punishment to society, that sound sounded much more sympathetic, much more logical to me. <clears throat> um, but I had to mention that in <laughs> my crim law class, we actually read an excerpt of, and then I read the full essay by C.S. Lewis called The Humanitarian Theory of Punishment. And Lewis is actually critiquing the utilitarian approach. Um, his argument is that when you make punishment and criminal law about some other use to society, whether it's educating the public or educating the criminal or, um, you know, incapacitating them, you lose sight of the sort of borders or boundaries around that punishment. And this is actually a really big problem in criminal law that occurred in the latter half of the 20th century, where um, we went from sentences that were very transactional almost, like you stole a mm -hmm. loaf of bread and so you owe one year in prison, to you are criminal in nature and we need to change your character by keeping you in prison until you are a good person. And that is really, really dangerous. It's an incredibly slippery slope because then people might end up staying in prison for a really, really long time. Also, um, I was pretty sure that a loaf of bread is 19 years in prison. <laughs> God. Do you know what that's from? Is that lame? Yes. <laughs> okay. Just so the listeners know, we both love musicals. We already they, they, they get it. But I hate Les Mis. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Did we just lose all of our listeners? I'm sorry, but it's just not it's okay. For me. We have one super fan, so <laughs> balances out. Um, okay, so I think the two crimes that are referenced in the first couple chapters are one, obviously thieves, um, which brings up possibly my favorite character in this entire universe, which is George. Um, I'm very excited. I have a lot of thoughts about to George. Hear Kayla's reactions <laughs> to George, but just to stick to the legal yes. stuff for a moment. Um, so historically, there are a lot of different 
um, theories or, or doctrines when it comes to um, stealing. And there are different punishments that have been seen throughout history, everything from a simple fine to shaming or being placed in stocks um, to be sort of yelled at and humiliated to the like horrible, horrible punishments <laughs> of literal mutilation as it's in not funny, I'm sorry. cutting <laughs> off a body part. I don't know why you're laughing. <laughs> See, either. this is what happens when you're a fan of Les Mis. <laughs> it just becomes a joke. <laughs> I am still thinking about Les Mis a little bit. <laughs> um, or even death, which uh, was actually not uncommon in medieval times. So Aladdin almost killed Exactly. Aladdin, famous historical figure. (laughs) (laughs) I do, I do, when I think about George, definitely think about Aladdin. King Um, of Thieves. King of Thieves. It's impossible not to. Totally. Um, And one of the things that uh, I think is important to note, but I'm not going to spoil anything, I'm just going to say this with no commentary, is that there was no police force that we know of in the medieval period. Um, So law enforcement was really left to the community. And so the idea of um, whether it was cutting off a body part or shaming someone by like making them stand in the stocks or whatever Mm -hmm. that looked like, that was a communal form of punishment. Um, And I just want to say that Tamara Pierce explores a lot of these different kinds of punishments and what that might look like across different cultures. And I'm excited to get more further into that as we read more of the books. Um, But that's on criminal law. The other thing I wanted to mention was there's a lot of philosophical questions Mm, in this book that I don't, I don't remember them being like, so I think Again, like when you're reading it as a right. kid, you just accept everything. Yeah. And it's like, obviously, this is a normal question to be asking, but it's very exciting to go back and think about how this is reflected in the legal studies I'm doing. So um, one thing I definitely want to mention is Duke Gareth's lecture to Alana after she beats up Raylon, which what an insane series of events, you yeah. know? I mean, I think <clears throat> you mentioned this earlier, but there are probably better ways to portray both bullying and how to overcome bullying. Like the idea that you're beating your bully up physically as the way to like tie the knot on that story is kind of troubling. Yes. Especially because all of the adults in her life were basically like, okay, well you just have to become better at fighting. Well, all the adults except... Sir Miles, our favorite teacher. (laughs) No, but didn't Sir Miles even say... No, 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 no. This is, I think, a very important point. He's not the one who said strike low. Okay, he did, but (laughs) only after he realized he couldn't convince her otherwise, Okay, that's fair. So um, I actually highlighted this because I think it's a really interesting moment with her and Miles that is juxtaposed with what she gets from Duke Gareth. Sorry, I should have had this up. That's okay. Steve can edit it out. (laughs) (laughs) Here we go. Here we go. Okay. So I'm just going to read a quick quote um, from, I believe this is chapter three, when Alana goes to Miles to talk about what's going on um, with Raylon, and Miles shakes his head and says, what are you trying to prove? He asked. She refused to answer. He went on bitterly, I truly love our code of chivalry. Obviously, said with sarcasm. (laughs) (laughs) We are taught that noblemen must take everything and say nothing. 
noblemen must stand alone. Well, we're men, and men aren't born to stand alone. And then Alana replies, nobles are, or they have to. Isn't that the same thing? And Miles says, no, it isn't. Hmm. Um, so I think that that's a really interesting moment. I mean, then he goes on to say, well, you're going to have to end up fighting him. And she says, essentially, I know that's why I'm preparing for it. And he is really worried for her. He says, he's yeah. taller than you. He's heavier than you. He's going to kill you. So many times people were like, he's going to be killed. Like, Alana is going to be killed. Yeah, which is pretty, like, brutal. It's a lot. It's a lot um, to deal with. And, and I imagine being in her mind, I would be pretty scared. Yeah. Um, and so again, I think that that highlights this like chivalrous aspect of her personality that she's, her response to that isn't, oh, let me find some other way to deal with this, which I think is what Miles is encouraging her to do, but rather that she's like, I'm just going to keep working and fighting and exercising and like building up my you know, set of tricks that I'm learning from George until I can beat him physically. Like so, Batman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly like Batman. You know, in The Dark Knight Rises when he's <laughs> getting buff in the prison. Yeah, totally. It's just exactly like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm just going to move on. Um, but I think, so what are what are the philosophical and legal things that are, that are, um, brought up there. So one you have from Duke Gareth and the Duke Gareth lecture, her reaction to it is essentially like, in fact, she says my world is governed by rules and there's a rule to cover every situation. And there are conflicting rules, right? Because there's a rule that says, don't fight physically with people, with your peers. That's not good. And then there's another rule that says, if someone is insulting your honor, and this is definitely a code of chivalry right. thing, right? You have to stand up for yourself. And that translates to you have to physically fight that person and beat them. And she sees this as a good thing. Like, I finally figured out all the rules and I know how to navigate this world. And I'm happy for her in that moment that she that she feels like finally she belongs. And I think mm-hmm. that's something we'll talk about yeah. later. But, um, but I find that really, really problematic. Um, And this is one of those instances where I'm not sure if Tamara Pierce intended it to be this way, but certainly I think you can find so many examples in our modern day setting where there are multiple sets of rules. Those that are encoded, those that are written down, and those that are just societal norms and expectations, and it leads people to get into a whole lot of trouble that um, leads to the kinds of societal problems that we have today like mass incarceration and just like generally the patterns of over policing in communities of color right like having i mean i taught very very briefly in a almost entirely black school in queens and i remember like noticing that there were these different sets of rules for how to behave, how to conduct yourself in different places. And that's mm-hmm. so confusing for a kid. Oh, yeah. Um, and I'm sure that you see that, like, on a grander scale because you've been doing this job for so long. Right, code switching. Yeah, code switching is a great example of of how we have to develop these responses to the different sets of expectations Yeah. in different places and scenarios. It's um, really hard for kids. Yeah, like... To not kind of feel like they have one way of being because they have to be 
one thing in one place and one thing in another place. Exactly. Yeah. So I found that to be kind of troubling. Um, what else was I going to mention here? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, with regards to Miles, I guess you could characterize this as a failure, right? Because he tries to explain to her that there are problems with the code of chivalry, but she just moves forward with what she was going to do and, and sort of takes Duke Gareth's path. Right. Um, and I would say my critique of Miles in this moment, even though I love him, <laughs> is that he doesn't really offer her another option. He's right. not like, here's what you can do other than like physically beating up this kid and right. breaking his nose. But it also might be because... He is not in a place to kind of go and find another option. Like, he still lives in the society where these rules exist. Yes, I think that's right. And instead of... Well, he says, this is why I drink so much. Yeah, exactly. Like, he's so depressed about the state of their society that he's just, like, Reminds me of, like, Hamish from The Hunger Games. Oh, boy. Yeah. But really, like, the idea of, instead of trying to make things better, I'm just gonna live. Absolutely. And drink. Yeah, and I mean, the Hunger Games um, analogy, I think, is an interesting one because she wrote that series based on, like, flipping through channels and seeing the Iraq War on one channel. Mm -hmm. And was it news stories about charter schools or... I'm not sure. Something of that nature. I, I mean, the parallel between the Hunger Games and the way that kids get into a charter school via lottery is pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, and I think you can find the elements of what's wrong with education in any American written fantasy fiction, even even something like Harry Potter that's British, because these are our conceptions of what education looks like. And so because we don't have like a better model to look to, right. it's going to come through even in a fiction a fictional story about a different kind of educational system. Um, okay, so those are all my... Legal facts. Those are my legal facts. <laughs> <laughs> We're leaving Clark Hayward's office and going back to <laughs> Kayla's kitchen. Um, what is next? So after legal facts... Oh, okay, should we talk about yeah. gender and feminism? Oh, yeah, because, I mean, far and large... The greatest strength of this book is the idea of gender bending and what she can do. Yes. There are definitely moments where I was like, okay, but you're kind of slipping into saying like, well, I'm not as good as a boy. Yeah. But but I am really interested to continue on and see how she continues this. Yes. Um, Especially because, you know, another prediction, but... Miles saw her kind of like be the essence of a woman mm-hmm. at the at that part and talking to the essence of Jonathan as a man. Yeah. Um, crazy scene. Yeah. <laughs> really a crazy scene. But I can just only imagine, because I didn't read this when I was a child, but thinking about how this would impact me as a young girl. Yes. And thinking... Why can't I be a knight? Yes. And I think, okay, so let's talk about for a second. This isn't a new framing idea for a story, even a fantasy story. The idea that you would um, disguise yourself as a man to get through some situation where women are not allowed. Shakespeare? Ever heard of him? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, Which, I mean, that is what I think... 
When people ask me what my favorite Shakespeare play is, I do often say Macbeth because, you know, I, it wasn't my first Shakespeare play, but it was the first one that I really loved. But is it, what's the, what is the play where they, um, uh, the one in Venice, right? Um, the Merchant of Venice? Merchant of Venice. Well, there's another one too. No, but that's the one where they're pretending to be lawyers. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, well that's the one that's, that's... I think there's actually a lawyer. But don't they... Okay, I'm I'm not remembering any of the characters' names, <laughs> but there's two women disguising themselves as men, right? In The Merchant of Venice. Yeah, am I making this up? Um, I was thinking of the one, like the Knights one. What is it called? The Knights, Knights one. Twelfth Night. Oh, Twelfth Night. Oh, it is Twelfth Night. Yeah. It's not Merchant of Venice. I'm sorry. Merchant of Venice is the one with the, like, pound of flesh. Okay, I think that I mixed... Shylock, I think is I his name. I mixed those two up in my head. Um, no, I think I'm thinking of Merchant of Venice, <laughs> not Twelfth Night. Because Twelfth Night is, like, essentially a rom-com. Yeah, but, like, it really hinges on Which the plot. Which one has a trial at the end? <laughs> it's Merchant of Venice, yeah. because that's the pound of flesh. Is that not, am I making this up, is it not two women disguised as men? In I don't that remember. In scene? Okay. Steve, look it up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to look it up really quick. Um... Yeah, Portia, Portia, Portia. Um, Portia, Portia, Portia. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay, so Portia, oh my goodness, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page right now and this is crazy. Portia (laughs) deftly appropriates Shylock's argument for specific performance, which... Maybe I'll talk about specific performance another day, but that's a, it's a legal term <laughs> that um, I just, one of the things that I hate about the law and the legal field is that they come up with all of these terms. And I know that sometimes it's, you know, the original phrase that was used in Latin or whatever, but I think they use so much legalese that is so unnecessary. So specific performance is just in usually a contracts case, you're asking for the other party to perform what they promised they would do in the contract rather than just paying you money. So like if we contracted for me to come to your apartment and feed Pearl while you were away and I for some reason was refusing to do it, maybe because Pearl is really mean to me, (laughs) (laughs) Pearl is Kale's cat, um, then you could go to court and maybe the judge would say, all right, she'll just give you the money back. And then you might say, no, I want specific performance. I want her to come and feed Pearl. So um, Portia argues for specific performance, which is to remove only the flesh and not the blood. And that that was... a brilliant legal argument in a moment of a lot of really bad anti-Semitism <laughs> that occurs in this yeah. play. Um, but, you know, uh, putting that aside for a moment, <laughs> um, I think it's, it's, it's a great moment in terms of the fact that you're not just showing a woman pretending to be a man. You're proving that that woman can do anything a man can do, including be as brilliant Mm -hmm. as a great lawyer, a great male lawyer, right? And that is one of the things that I think Tamara Pierce does in in these books is that it's not just that Alana is disguising herself as a guy to, like, visit the castle so that she can convince the prince to fall in love with her or something, you know? Like, she is doing it so that she can prove to everybody that a woman can do all of the things that are expected of a knight. Um, and do them well. And do them better than anybody yeah. else. Yes. 
And that is really important. And then the other thing that I find really interesting about this perspective is that because Alana is not a guy, right? She still identifies very much as a woman, even though she struggles with that right? Um, in, in a lot of different ways that we'll discuss. But she is seeing how these men have been raised. Like, what are the norms expected of them? And one of them might be that, you know, when someone's bullying you, you right. have to fight back. And that's something that I find really interesting is that her friends are like, can't we just beat him up for her? Yeah. You know, why does she have to go through this? And and at first they don't really understand. And I think that that demonstrates that she's actually creating this she's putting this expectation on herself mm-hmm. even though she's perceiving it as external right it's really an internal internally imposed self-imposed um expectation because right. she's trying to prove in fact i think she said yeah i need to prove I'm that i'm it. as good as any of the other boys but i like that we get the pov moments from john and gary and raul and all of those guys because that sort of proves to the reader like hey this this expectation that Alana is putting her putting on herself it's not coming from her friends you know yeah um, and that is really important did you find it yes on page 84 in chapter 3 she would show everyone including that part of her that was always wondering that she was as good as any boy in the palace Exactly. And then on page 77, also she says, it would mean that she could do anything larger and stronger males could. Yes, yes. All in both instances talking about how the other boys would fight for her, but she doesn't want that. She's determined to do it herself. Right. Yeah. And I think, like, everybody in the world has experienced imposter syndrome and feeling like you're not good enough and you have to work yourself to like an unhealthy degree Mm -hmm. to prove that you're worthy of something and I still do that to this day I try not to I work on that with my therapist (laughs) um but I do think like you have insecurities about you know not being smart enough not being nice enough in her case not being strong enough and you in a in an unhealthy way combat that by saying I'm gonna do so well at this I'm going right. to ignore yeah. all all yeah. offers of help yep. to be the best. Um, but then she does go to George for help. Okay, great point. This is a great time to hear your thoughts about George. <laughs> Tell us. Well, I just, like, why does, he, why does he have an interest in Alan? Okay, so this is a moment where you get more explanation later. Okay. Um, but I... Agree that it does seem really random <laughs> and strange. And I'm actually really curious what her thoughts were at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think we'll ever know. Um, I mean, I don't know. I, I've read a lot of interviews of her, and I haven't seen her ever talk about that. Because there is a canonical answer. Um, but I don't. I really highly doubt that that yeah. answer was developed at the at time the that time. she wrote this story. I mean, I love him. I just oh my God, can't get amazing. enough of him. He's yeah. amazing. Um, yeah, we get a lot more of George's story much later on, so sadly you won't get it for a while. But um, he's an incredible character, and I love him. It's just like the part when they go to the dancing dove. Yes. And they're like, 
I'm nine, and you're going <laughs> to let me into this pub to, to meet this king of thieves yeah. who's like I assume in his 20s like I don't know I got the vibe of um, like I believe he's 17 okay I was gonna say 20 so yeah. no I believe he's 17 and I believe well I'm not sure that he was the youngest king of thieves okay in history I could be totally wrong about that I'll double check it probably besides Aladdin besides <laughs> Aladdin who was what like 12 well actually his dad was the king of thieves that's in the third one so okay. the third movie I never saw the third one <laughs> you know I thought it was really good and then when I got Disney plus I watched it again and I was like hmm I remembered Aladdin's cartoon dad as being like so hot <laughs> And was he? No. <laughs> the animation is, like, terrible. Oh, but it's still good. Everyone go uh, go ahead and watch it. Yeah. Oh, you know what? We really should have disclosed your relationship with Disney. Ah, uh, sorry. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's been clear. <laughs> um, Kayla is a big Disney fan. And if you ever need any answers to Disney trivia, <laughs> whether it be content of the movies, the shorts, or trivia about Disney World itself, Kayla Zogeb is, uh, that's the place to go. Okay, so back to gender, gender roles, feminism. Um, I think for me, again, like having grown up with these books, they were obviously so important to me, and a huge reason was because there was such a strong message of, like, strong female characters who are independent, who can do all these different amazing things, and who just are... really developed people like she's a real person you know um she's not a real person she's fictional but she (laughs) comes across as a real she's well-rounded yes exactly and she makes mistakes and she learns from them and she has certain character traits that um like oh i love that moment with her and raul when she yells at him for teasing her about not going into the pool and then she apologizes and he says something along the lines of like you know, you seem like you're trying so hard to fit in. Did you ever think we might like you because of the ways that you're different? And she immediately rejects it. She's like, what is he trying to pull something over me? Like, obviously that's not true. Um, but I think even though in the moment she rejects it, you see her kind of starting to accept that over time. Um, and that I think there's a moment where it's mentioned that she likes that she can make these older friends laugh, you know, just yeah. because she is like so frank and... Um, has a good sense of humor so yeah an incredible personality like the kind of person this is what it is you know what this is what i think makes me love these series is that it's women who i would want to be friends with yeah and i definitely see like when i meet people and i become friends with people i say to myself like this person reminds me of this character right um and that i think is the mark of a really really great job of building a character yeah. that you can actually see those characters in the real life people in your life. Right. And that is a problem that a lot of fantasy stories have about women specifically. Yes. Um, I feel like I've been doing a lot of fantasy reading recently by men who somehow always make the women witches. And that's oh kind of the only God. thing. Like they're mystical or they're fantastical because... They They're a woman. Yeah, they can't come up with, like, a real right. down-to-earth person. Which, like, I gotta be honest, I love witches. Who I doesn't? love witches. Who doesn't? But the idea that that's kind of 
the only thing for a while that women were. They were either a princess or if they were trying to, well, you know, make them a well-rounded person, it's like, well, actually, they can do magic. <laughs> <laughs> That's the interesting thing about her. Right. She yes. can do magic. Yes. And, like, use her magic for evil. Like, that's it. Like, those were the things. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to... I'm trying to come up with an example of... I mean, I think, obviously, the other, like, strong female character in a fantasy book that I grew up with was Hermione. Yes. Um, But as has been talked about to death... Yes. ...in literary commentary is that Hermione is treated so terribly in the books as a character, as a person in that world right um by her friends yeah she's like so perfect it's almost unnot believable like how do you know everything um but then again i have friends like that who just they just know everything and they're perfect and um we hate them and we try to forget about them (laughs) to make ourselves feel better one of them sitting right here (laughs) just kidding (laughs) um certainly i mean there's so much fantasy and i was actually just reading this book about Tolkien, Professor Tolkien, who um, was often critiqued for not having any female characters, which of course he did have the two um, <laughs> that are sort of well known. And there, there are more female characters in yeah. his other works, but ones that could do magic, for example. Ones that could do magic, yes. Well, to be fair, I mean, all all of the. I mean, they're not human, right? They're like. Well, yeah, elves. okay, that's a good point. I mean, you know, it's a slightly different thing, but. Um, I mean, it's one thing if everybody can do magic. Fair. Right? And then that's not necessarily your personality. That's Um, a little bit Galadriel's personality, though. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to dispute that. I would say, I think Galadriel is, like, a more developed character, but it's also, like, she's thousands of years (laughs) old, and she has this, like, otherworldly knowledge and is in some ways sort of angelic, so I don't know if that's the best example. I mean, Eowyn is almost the best example because she's human. Right. And then your question is, like, what's her personality? Um, I think, you know, she's, she's what I would say is a common, like, 20th century um, caricature of a woman, which is she is kind of, like, spunky. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, like, wow, she's really gonna, that woman's really gonna do her best to fight just (laughs) like a man. And, wow. But also is still in love with a man. So cute. Oh, my God. What a cute little story. You know? Like, I definitely see... The pro- and let me say, I love Eowyn as a character. I love that story. Like, it's a great story, but but he could have done more, you know? And especially for someone who had such amazing women in his life. Right. His wife, his daughter, you know? But anyway, um, this is a problem in fantasy. We know this. Um, and I think Tamara Pierce does a great job. The one thing that I think is... I've seen as a critique of this book is that there actually are very few women in this book. I was just going to say that, but then how can that be a critique when that's kind of the whole point? Right, exactly. It is the point, yeah. Like, she's thrust into a man's world. Right. And then she has to figure out how to navigate it and whatnot. Um, And technically, if made into a movie, this would still pass the Bechdel test because she talks to Maude. And the queen. But that's about Jonathan. But so that's about that Jonathan. That doesn't count. But she talks to Maude about, you know. Right. All that. So um, that's 
you know, not a great, not a great sign. But I will say, I'm, don't worry. There right. are many amazing female characters to come, and they will hang out together, and it's going to be glorious. I'm excited. <laughs> I can't wait to see where this goes. Yes. Okay. So we will have much more to say about gender and feminism in future episodes. But let's let's move on to our last segment, which is adapt or not. So because there is a potentially impending television show, we want to talk about what we think in the books would be adapted well, based on what we've seen of adaptations of fantasy and other fiction, um, and what we think would not be adapted well. And I will bring up a very sore subject for fantasy fans, (laughs) which is Tom Bombadil, who was not in the Lord of the Rings movies, but... I think we got to be honest here and I say know. that would not have gone over. You know well. what I would love though? A standalone Tom Bombadil show. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you and I might be two of like a hundred people who watch it. That is not true. There are so many okay. Lord of the Rings fans. Let me just out say, there. while we're, we've briefly just discussed um, feminism and fantasy, I can't tell you how many men I have encountered who claim to be Lord of the Rings fans, and they have never heard of Tom Bombadil, okay? They haven't even heard of, like, very obvious parts of the books and mythology. That are not in the movie. That just are not in the movie. Or maybe they're in the movie, but, like, briefly. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not... I don't think that you should... There shouldn't be a competition for who's the best fan. It's just that um, I think what's frustrating about this is there is a sense in some communities of fandom that, like, only boys allowed. You know, like, boys are the Tolkien fans. Oh, yeah. Boys are the fantasy fans. And so it's incredibly frustrating when you realize, like, how, how little they've actually spent time with these works that mean a lot to me. Yeah. Personally. Um... Oh, shoot. You know what? We probably should have identified pronouns and gender at the top of this. Oh, we could edit it in. Steve? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, yes, uh, we both identify as female, she, her pronouns. Um, So we're going to talk a lot about how girls are better than boys. (laughs) (laughs) But all in good fun. Yes. Um, So adapt or not. Yes. I think something that would be challenging is the age of oh, the characters. Yes. Especially because this book takes place over a certain number of years. Yes. Is that something I can tell you how many years the series takes place in? Um, that's fine. That, that won't bother me okay. personally. Okay, okay, okay. So actually I have to count it up. So I think she's 10 at the beginning of this, right? Um, so if she starts out as 10, then the first two books is 8 years. Sheesh. And then the following two books are like two or three years. Um, yeah, that's really fast. Yes, it's very fast. And the other books are not nearly as fast. So this is a particular pace. Um, and actually, this is something that, that Tamara Pierce has talked. I sh- we should just call her Tammy. Because that's what that's what everyone calls her on Facebook, and it's way oh, really? shorter. I can't, I can't be saying four syllables every time. So, so Tammy said in an interview once that... Um, Actually, I think it was because of the success of Harry Potter that YA authors were allowed to start publishing longer books because when she was first publishing these books, um, there was a general sense that, like, kids couldn't handle more than, like, whatever this is, 200 pages. Um, 
And so she was able to sort of slow down and take her time with some of the characters. But why did we bring this up? Oh, adapting. Right. Yeah. So that would be difficult for sure. And then the question is like, do you get different actors or do you pull a Harry Potter and just like wait with someone and hope that they turn out to be a good actor? Or you could, you know, pull the crown and just pick different people for each season. Yeah. That would be interesting. So did you watch the Queen's Gambit? No. I thought they did a very good job with that. I mean, it's not as dramatic of an age difference, but the same actress goes from being, I think, around 13, 14 to being, like, early 20s. Mm. Um, and I don't know if that's because they happen to cast someone who whose face, like, lends itself <laughs> to being younger or older, or if that's costume. And obviously now they have amazing aging right. technology. Um, although you wouldn't want to have to do that for, like, long a long time. I know. So in my mind, I feel like they pick someone who is, like, 15 or right. could pass as 15 and then age them down at the beginning. So then a lot of this book would just have to take place when they look that age of, like, right. 15, 16. Yes. Because yeah. I just think it wouldn't work. Right. Yeah. I mean, or you have different seasons with different actors. Right. Yeah. Which could, I think, also... Yeah. Totally work. Um, I mean, in The Queen's Gambit, she actually starts out at, like, eight or nine, I think, and mm. that's a different actress. Okay, yeah. Or they pull a... Remember when they had Bilbo as Ian Holm in... Uh, like, they, like, aged him somehow, yes. didn't they? Wait, you mean at the, in The Return of the King? Yeah, that, but I, I'm pretty sure they did it in The Hobbit, too. Oh! oh to like, in the movie? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. But I don't... It would be it would be better, I think, to. That's definitely a challenge. Yes. I think we can place that <laughs> solidly in the challenge category. Decisions um, for other people, but definitely right. something that would be hard. Something to think about. Um, but everything else? else, I think, would be really fun in a TV show. Yeah, yeah. I'm really glad that it's going to be adapted as a TV show instead of a movie. Yeah, I mean, it's so there's so many parts to it. Yeah, I mean, we've only done the first. I know half I of know. the first book. <laughs> How long have we been talking? Yeah, a long Steve? time. <laughs> <laughs> so I think um, what else would be difficult? I mean, there there are certain things that I think because they have the ability to read all of the books, they can place some of that like mm-hmm. retrofitting that I was mentioning, yeah. um, which are the cool kind of hints and clues for the fans who've read everything. Um, one of the things I always think is challenging for something with such a huge canon, and this is was I think also true for the Lord of the Rings movies, is how do you make sure it's not bogged down by right. those kinds of references? And I feel like that's a little bit of what happened with the Hobbit movies, right. which... God, what a terrible set of movies. I mean, it doesn't even need to be said. We all know it. It's so sad. It is sad. Um, But, you know, one of the problems there is that they didn't have a lot of source material to work with. They spread it out out. into three movies. And then, in order to fill the time, they tried to, like, create all of these references to different parts of the Silmarillion and and other um, works of Tolkien and and other, like, like, almost... Yeah, non-canon um, references that fans were excited about, right? And it was like a nice nod, but I feel like that really reduces the value of the artwork, yeah, for for a broader audience, and also like it's just not as powerful 
a story. Yeah. Which is the most important thing I think about these books is like they are powerful stories that are inspiring to young readers. So I, I'm curious to see how they handle that if this ever actually happens. I would also like to see how they cast it because yeah, it's not like there is ever an naming of a race of care of these characters right they never say oh, that they're white Oh, interesting okay yeah we didn't talk about race today. right i think that there's probably more to come about race yeah, is definitely. my assumption definitely but in the idea that we're thinking of this as a european story yeah that puts something into our heads but i also think that it doesn't have to be a hundred percent. And I think there are descriptions of different characters. I feel um, like I don't, I can't remember a time when they said that what color their skin was though. So, um, so they describe Alana, I think from the beginning as pale with freckles. Okay. Uh, she and Tom, when they're describing the two of them. Also, I just really hope we get to spend more time with Tom. I want to know how his magic is going. Oh, Tom. <laughs> um, also, I just want to know why he has an H in his name. Like, why, why did we drop <laughs> the H from Tom? That is a question for you, historian scholar. Come uh, up with an answer. I'm not a, I'm not a name. <laughs> name historian. Um, so I'm trying to look for when they describe Alex. Because, I mean, I can just tell you from seeing, like, fan art and Mm -hmm. all that, that um, Alex is often drawn as Mm non-white. But, um, of course, like, the the country's places of origin are all entirely fictional here. Right. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I'm going to find it right off the top. We could also talk about it in our next episode. Yeah. And we can think about it more as we... Right. Um... But certainly, I think race and, like, cultural differences and all that are going to be a huge theme as we go along. Um, Okay. Sorry, I'm just forgetting whether... Does she go on a trip with anyone? Nope. Okay, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's going to happen in the next next section. What's What's your favorite moment so far? How do you hit a girl with that kind of question right away? <laughs> I feel like maybe I, I mentioned something that... I mean, oh. I really like magic, so I do like when she decides to give in to her magic and start using it. Yes, that is an amazing moment, and I think introduces like a lot of... Not rules, but like realities about this right. universe that we're yes. not familiar with yet. Um, but, okay, my favorite moment of this these four chapters is when Alana's like this is too hard I'm leaving (laughs) and then Coram's like okay whatever you say and then then doesn't pack (laughs) one bit he's like I know we are not going anywhere and that then, part is very oh, sweet. So sweet. Yes. And also, like, Coram. Coram is so sweet. Amazing. First of all, the fact that he, she persuades him pretty easily <laughs> yes. to come along with this. And then he's like, okay, yeah, like, I love you. I raised you. You're a good fighter. I know that you can be a good knight. We're going to do this together. And he really has her back, yeah. you know, throughout the whole thing. So um, kudos to Coram for just being the all-around best 
We can have a winner. What even do you call it? Do you want to have a winner of the episode? Winner of the episode, definitely Coram. Love it. I'm in. Yes. All right. Coram, clap it up. Thank you very much. Um, Thanks for listening to our very first episode of the Dancing Dove podcast. Next week, we'll be discussing chapters five through eight of The First Adventure. We hope to see you there. Thanks, as always, to the Silverman Brothers, to Arif for our beautiful music, and to Nadim for our wonderful cover art. This week, we'd also like to thank all the fans on the Facebook groups who have helped us out in answering some questions, and of course, Tamara Pierce herself. See you next week.